want to uh, thank those of you, though I don't know who you are, but many of you offered rooms in your homes for people that needed to evacuate from the coast. And we tried to publicize that on the church website uh, on Friday. Uh, we also were prepared to use the church building and the, the youth building, the gymnasium, and the locker rooms there for evacuees if needed. So I, I thank, thank you all for your willingness with that. I've received many questions about our ministry partners in Haiti. Uh, you've read of the, the death total being in the upper hundreds and probably will just be increasing. For those that are not aware, if you're new here, uh, we for probably, I guess, about 10 years have had a partnership with a Haitian ministry called El Shaddai Ministries International. And our partnership grew out of the fact that this is led by two brothers, Donnie St. Germain and Louis St. Germain, who grew up in Haiti. Their dad was a pastor. Uh, they were educated in America, and yet they have, have lived in Haiti. They pastor there, uh, and we've had a close relationship with them, and we trust them. And they know how to get things done in that country that boggles the mind of many Americans. So um, I talked to Donnie last night on the telephone. Uh, Donnie and his wife Sharon and their two girls in recent months have moved back to Miami where he's pastoring, but also he goes back and forth between Haiti and Miami. And when he saw the hurricane coming, he got on a plane and went to Haiti, knowing that he needed to be there to minister to many of the churches they started. They have a network of churches. They have 124 churches. When we started supporting them, they had 16 churches. I mean, this is an aggressive group and that are zealous for the Great Commission. Now, a church may be meeting out under a tree. Another may be in a big building with 2,000 people. So it's a pretty broad definition. But they're all over that portion of, of the island that is shared with the Dominican Republic. And... They have a university, the only university of its type in the whole country in Jeremy, right outside of Jeremy, and many of us have been down there. And Jeremy and Lakai's are the two cities that you're seeing the pictures of the devastation. And so as I've looked at some of those pictures, I can see spots where we stood in larger buildings in Jeremy, which is called the beautiful town of Jeremy. That's what... If you looked it up before this hurricane, that's what it was referred to. Well, there's a, they, they have a university and a seminary. We helped to purchase property and helped with the finances of that. And he told me three of the buildings were completely destroyed. Almost all the buildings had their roofs torn off. Uh, the house that he and Sharon had built there, um, all the windows were blown out. Uh, there's a Baptist church in Nashville, Long Hollow Baptist Church, that all know partner also partners with them, and they have a guest quarters, a dormitory where mission teams stay. It was destroyed, uh, and we've stayed there, some of us, about two years ago. So lots of devastation. Deaths in one of their churches, there were several people that died. All the orphans they care for, uh, though they got them to safety. Um, I asked Donnie about their greatest needs, and he, he mentioned, first of all, that right now, while we're here, all those churches will worship. And he said, tomorrow, 
they'll be standing out in fields because the trees are all blown down. And if there are any walls still standing of their church buildings, they'll be within those walls, they'll clear away the debris, and they will be worshiping God. That's what he said. 6,000 people. Uh, he said the need is for food. In some areas, and I, I don't even tend to think like this, the people in some of these remote areas live off the fruit of those trees, and especially breadfruit trees, fruit bread trees. Uh, so those trees are all gone now, and so that has a direct correlation with food. They are sending out trucks to people in their ministry filled with food and trying to provide for these 6,000 people. Our mission committee would like to provide food. I said, because this figure was given to me by a member of the mission committee, I said, Donnie, how much will $30,000 provide? He said, that'll be two and a half trucks. So if you'd like to help contribute to a gift that we'll be sending to El Shaddai, 100% of it goes to this need. There's no administrative fee. And we, we trust them like we, well, we have no reason not to trust them. And if you would like to do that, you can give a donation to the church this week and just mark it Haiti Relief. And that'll be part, and we're going to give it to supply food. That's what it's going for. And they distribute it. That's, that's what they're doing. You can also go on ESMI, um, ESMIHome.org, El Shaddai Ministries International Home. Now, don't just put, ES, don't just put El Shaddai because there's ministries all over the world called El Shaddai. I've already done that. Put ESMI Haiti or home, and you'll see Donnie St. Germain and his wife's picture there, and he gives daily updates um, and the, each day for the past several days. So I want to pass that on to you, and I hope that, that you will uh, participate. All right, we are in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 uh, this morning. We've been in a study of 1 Corinthians, and uh, I want to cover chapter the, a large part of chapter 3 with the time that we have. Dr. Kruger will be here next week. Uh, there is no doubt the subject that he is going to be addressing is the most pertinent of any, I think, we've had addressed at our Macon Biblical Institute equipped sessions. Um, I regularly hear people uh, aggressively attack the scriptures as not being trustworthy, as uh, not being written by the people that we say wrote them, and uh, it's amazing to me how some of these are very, very, very old arguments that have been put to rest long ago, and yet they continue to rise up as though they're new and people make money selling books off of them. And Dr. Kruger is, he is, uh, he is the, one of the leading authorities in this whole area. You don't want to miss uh, hearing him. Chuck, am I right? Friday night is 6.30 and not 7 p.m.? So Friday night on your schedule, that's a mistake. The, the meeting begins, the, the meal's first, but he will begin, will begin the session with him at 6.30. Okay, now to the scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, just one word of background. Paul is writing to these believers. He had planted the church there. Now it's a few years later. He's in the city of Ephesus. He's writing back because one reason is there are a lot of divisions in the church. And he's going to address some of those here in chapter 3. And so, hear God's word beginning in verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. 
I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? When once, when one, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Our Father, now we ask that our hearts would be as good soil that seed would land on and bear much fruit, 30, 60, and 100 fold. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My father died many years ago, but uh, he was a very intelligent man. He uh, was a practicing lawyer and then later served as a judge in Alabama. And my dad was a reader. Uh, my mom always said he probably would have been at his best as a college history professor. But he liked to read uh, books, especially on politics. That was probably the thing that interested him most, uh, college football and politics, and he would read about that. And at breakfast, he would read the newspaper while he was eating in a little restaurant near the courthouse in my hometown. And one morning, he was sitting in a booth in that, in that restaurant, and he said to the guy across from him, he said, something's wrong. I'm not able to comprehend the words on this page. And so he was not acting himself. He was no longer behaving the way that was typical of him. There was a change, and medical tests revealed that he had had a stroke. It wasn't a massive stroke. He could, he could still speak. Um, he, he could use his hands and feet and walk, but, but his, his ability to associate objects, words, all that had changed. Thankfully, with many months of therapy, there was great improvement made. But what showed it was the outward behavior had changed. He was not who he normally was. That's what's happened here in the city of Corinth. They are not acting like they should be acting. There's divisiveness. There's a party, partisan spirit among them saying, I belong to this guy, or I follow this guy, or I follow this guy. And Paul reminds them, he writes to them compassionately and calls them brothers there in verses 1 and 2. He's not coming down hard with a hammer like he's the judge over them. He's writing as a fellow believer. 
And he says, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, i.e. as infants in Christ. Infants, babies in Christ. The New Testament uses the picture of a baby often to compare that of a new believer. First Peter says that as newborn babes, as young Christians, as new Christians, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. So babies have predictable, a healthy baby has predictable behavior. We know at certain ages, around nine or ten months, some babies begin to walk while others begin at age 15 to 17 months. Most babies will start saying simple words between six and nine months of age. Others may not speak until they reach 12 months. And even though there's some variation, babies develop in a fairly predictable pattern and timetable if everything's okay. And if the development is not coming along, then something may be wrong and we should check it. Uh, We took our disabled son when he was a young boy to see a uh, developmental psychologist, the, supposedly the best in Atlanta at that time, and, and he, he told us that all of the records they were aware of, that if a person did not speak, I believe my memory's right, by age 10, they said that's pretty much it. If someone doesn't learn to speak or has the capacity to speak by age 10, there's almost no studies that show anybody talks after that age. Um, I met a guy, I spoke to a guy yesterday, and an African-American fellow, and I, I said, do you have a church? I'm a pastor. And uh, he said, no, we don't go to church. We used to. And, and when we ended up talking, he told me his youngest child was disabled. And, and I said, that's why you don't go to church. I found out a lot of people that are disa- have disabled kids, they can't go to church. Who's going to keep the child? I said, we have a disabled nursery. Why don't you come visit our church? And I said, what's the condition of your daughter? And he told me the name of the syndrome. And and uh, I said, uh, d- does she speak? He said, no. And I said, how old is she? And I was thinking exactly what the, he said, she's five. I said, who's the primary caregiver? He said, my wife and I are the primary caregivers. So babies have predictable behavior. Back to the spiritual part, they were acting like, they were acting immature when they should have been older. They should have been teenagers by now in Corinth, spiritually speaking. And he said, I had to address you as babies. I couldn't even give you meat spiritual meat. I, I could not give you substantive things. I had to give you milk because you were still babies and immature. Well, how did that show up? What did he look for? Well, it shows up in verse 3 in that there was jealousy and strife among them. There was division. And he says that's signs of spiritual immaturity. Some people love to argue and debate everything. I mean, everything's a matter of principle when it's really not an issue, a primary issue we're talking about, and they view that as mature, and Paul is saying that's immature to them. Y'all are fighting over things that are not important. You're claiming to be loyal to this person or that person or that person. So he gives them three metaphors that I'll cover quickly in these moments we have. First, he reminds them who they are. He says, you are God's field in verse 9. You're God's field. You and I are God's field. Now, if you live in a house and you have a field beside your house and you say, hey, I'd like to grow, plant a little garden out there. I'm going to grow some vegetables out in that field. You know that fields don't produce on their own. Fields are passive. A vegetable garden or so forth. You, you realize it has to be cultivated. It has to be tilled. It has to be 
plant has seed planted on it. It, has, it needs weeds controlled. It needs irrigation. And Paul says that the church, believers, are God's field. That's the metaphor for what we are. And he says that he had planted the seed in verse 6. Paul came along. We read about it in Acts chapter 18. He preached the gospel. He gave them the bad news, the good news. He called them to repentance. People were converted. This church was started. What he was doing, he said, I planted. After Paul, Paul goes to Ephesus and Apollos. Apollos comes in. And you can relate to this. If you've walked with Christ for any amount of time, probably the person who led you to Christ, whether that was a family member or a, or a campus minister or, or friend or whoever it might have been, a preacher, uh, they weren't the person who then helped you get on your feet spiritually. God's brought different people into your life probably to help you grow in different ways at different times. But you experienced change. And they had experienced, and Paul reminds them. So in verse 5, he says, what is Apollos? What is Paul? His rhetorical questions with the answer, we're servants of the Lord. We're his agents. He's working through us, but it's God who is doing the work. Paul said that he planted. He was the first evangelist in Corinth, but Apollos came along behind him and he watered the seed that Paul, so to speak, had put in the ground. Verse 8, the activities of the one who plants and the seed and the one who waters are complementary. They have one purpose, he reminds them. So they're not competing against each other, Paul and Apollos. They were complementing each. And each of us will receive a reward according to our own labor. Now, this should be comforting to you and to me. You have a field where you're ministering. You are the field, but you're also ministering in the field. And maybe your field is about that big. Maybe some others, it's this big. Maybe some have a massive field. You have quite an influence in many lives. But who causes the growth? God does. When you look at people in the Old Testament, take, for example, Jeremiah, the prophet. He served the Lord faithfully for years. He was oppressed. He suffered during that time. And basically, there was no fruit from his work. The field was not productive. Then take Jonah. Jonah disobeyed God. He ran away from God because he was fearful. No, because he hated the Ninevites. He was a racist. He didn't want them to repent. He wanted God's judgment to fall on them, these enemies of his nation. And yet, when he finally goes, what happens? At least 100,000 people are converted, one of the greatest awakenings in history. Jeremiah faithful, almost no fruit. Jonah disobedient, enormous fruit. Who's responsible? Well, God is. It's not the person who sows. It's God who causes that. And he says we are fellow workers. Second metaphor, addressed in verse 9, you are God's building. So you as a church, you as a body of believers, you're God's field, but you're also God's building. And Paul says in verse 10 and following that he's a master builder. Paul had a specialty in the construction trade, you might say, of ministry, and that was foundations. He laid the foundation. When, when our church years ago built the fellowship hall and nursery area that's back there, I, the offices for the staff are in the building next to us, and there was a window that looked out at the site. And I would walk back there each afternoon and just take a look at the progress. And of course, it didn't take long to tear down what was there. It was a little one-story building. And then 
it seemed like it took forever for them to come out of the ground. They were digging and pouring concrete and digging and pouring concrete and footings and and rebar and and plumbing things coming up. This went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I was thinking, good night. As much time as they're spending at ground level, this building will never get finished. Well, guess what happened? Once that foundation was finished, it seemed like within a matter of days, the building appeared. All the studs and the walls and the electrical and the flooring and everything just happened very quickly relative to the foundation. The foundation is critical, and that's what Paul liked to do. He liked to walk into a current, start from scratch, lay the foundation of the gospel and people coming to faith in Christ. Then they started growing in Christ. He's ready to leave. He goes from there. He goes to Ephesus. He calls Apollos in. Apollos follows him in Corinth. So you take him now. Then he goes to Ephesus, stays there three years, and then hands it over to Timothy. Here, Timothy, you take it. So he was a foundations expert. We all play a role in building the superstructure. And what he stresses here now is what, what are the materials we use. When you build, have this foundation and you build this superstructure, you can choose gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw. Can you imagine a very, very expensive foundation like in that building, in a multi-million dollar building, and then what if we had said, well, you know, they've got all the foundation laid. We're kind of tight on money. Let's just put up a little plywood structure. We'll just put four walls and some partitions, and we'll just put a plywood structure on this foundation. You'd say, that doesn't match. You don't build a, found, you build a foundation like that because you imagine a majestic building. And so the church, we as a building are majestic, and we are part of the builders. It's not just the original apostles and the evangelists and the, the teachers and so forth. He refers that we are all building. The question is, what kind of materials are we using? Are we giving our all for Christ with sincere motives? Are we making the most of the opportunities and so forth? And when we realize we are building a house that we live in, you might say, is the church. I have a cousin, and he built a house years ago where he and his family were going to, there was no reason they'd ever move, and they built the house as though we're going to live here forever, at least in this life. And so he told me, when I was asking about the building process, he said, I stood at the building site in every truck, with supplies that came up, I would look at it, and there were many times I said, you aren't putting that in my house. Take that back. You're not putting those bent boards in my house. You're not putting that inferior sheetrock in my house. Take it back and bring some up. So he, why was he so concerned? What if it was a spec house? What if he was building it and was going to sell it or someone sell it to a complete stranger? There's not that much vested interest. He might have said, well, it won't be perfect. You know, the walls might not line up exactly, but uh, it will do. No, we are building. It's God's house, but we are part of that house. In a sense, we're building where we live. Now, what will we know about the materials we use? How will we know the quality? Well, there's an evaluation coming. There's a day of evaluation. God's blowtorch, so to speak, is going to test the quality of those materials and with fire, and it will reveal what was there. It all may look solid now. It all may look the same now, but there's going to be an evaluation of how we built. 
Years ago, it was on the cover either of Newsweek or Time magazine. It was the annual report of the California wildfires. I'm not, anybody here from California, I'm not making light of it, but it seems like every year we get, you know, there's all these wildfires that burn up part of California. And this particular picture on that magazine showed where a fire had come through Laguna Beach and a very expensive high-end neighborhood um, had all, it showed the charred remains of these houses and there was one house that was made of white stucco and a red tile roof. You may remember the picture and it was basically undamaged. This whole area, this ridge on this mountain, all burned up, all the big mansions except this one house. It had two cracked windows. That was the only damage. Well, here's why that house stood. The man who built the house lived in the house, and he was a Vietnamese man who had moved to America. He was a civil engineer here, and he brought his wife and four children to America, but he grew up in Vietnam, and when he was eight years old, the apartment building where he and his family lived caught fire, and they had to flee. So he determined he was never going to be in a burning building again. So when he came to California, he spent an enormous sum by today's dollars with the way that they constructed it, very thick with the type of insulation and the stucco and no space between the roof with the venting and so forth. And everybody thought he was crazy to spend that kind of money on the building. Everybody except the firefighters. So what revealed what the quality was? If you had driven down that street before the fire, you probably wouldn't have even picked it out as being any nicer or better than any other house, any other mansion on the street. But after the fire, it was the only house still standing, and it wasn't even charred from the fire. When God brings this day of judgment, it will reveal, it will reveal whether what we built, the superstructure, with our works is silver, gold, precious stones, or whether it was just wooden hay to be burned up very quickly. That day is the day when Christ will return. Lastly, he says we are God's temple. The original temple was built with God's very specific directions in the Old Testament, but it was built under King Solomon. And then that temple was pretty much Destroyed, not totally, but, but by and large by King Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. About 50 years later, the Jews are allowed to return and they rebuild the temple. It never had the original glory. It wasn't as big as the Temple of Solomon, but it was on the same site. And then that temple in 70 A.D. was completely demolished, except for a small portion of a wall, which is still there today, completely demolished by the Romans. Now, what was strange about the Jewish temple is that they were surrounded by cultures that all had temples. They all had goddesses and gods. And so there would be, like in Ephesus, the temple of Diana, Artemis of the Ephesians. And what those temples housed were the idols, were the figures and the figurines of the god and goddesses that they worshipped at that temple. So the temples would be filled with these idols. What did the Jewish temple have in it? Nothing as far as an idol. Oh, there was certain furniture and a laver and all these things and the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant and what it contained and, 
and the fire that burned all the time, but there was no image of God. There was no idol depicting Jehovah. So the other cultures looked at this and thought, this is ridiculous. You build a temple and there's no God in it? Well, what was it saying? God comes to dwell among his people. And at special times, at certain times of the year, in the Day of Atonement, God would come and he would display his power. And yet, what are we taught in the New Testament? Two things. We, as a body of believers, are God's temple, and our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But here, he's talking about, as believers, we are the temple of God. Now, he's writing to people who've been quick to form divisions and a party spirit and disunity, and he gives a very strong warning that God will destroy the one who destroys his temple. Now, this is not a place to draw a doctrine about hell and and punishment. The point is, it's a very serious thing to destroy the temple of God. One of the questions of membership in the Presbyterian Church in America to join a church like this is, do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? In other words, am I saying, I'm not going to come here and gossip or be divisive or promote false teaching or practice hypocrisy or tolerate sin. That's how we destroy the temple of God today, the the body, the local body of believers. Last of all, I'm out of time. A couple of weeks ago, I I had a meeting with a man I've not seen in many years, and he and his wife now live in, in North Georgia, in the hills of North Georgia. I can't bring myself to call them the mountains of North Georgia. I have been out west. And so he lives there, and he said, I'm a prepper. Young people, you know what I'm talking about, meaning he's storing up his guns and his food and, and all this for when the apocalypse comes, he's going to be ready. And that's one of the reasons they live where they live. Uh, well, that be as it may, and I'm not foolish enough to think there aren't others sitting here today just like him, but... I want you to be a prepper, but I'm not talking about guns and food and, and bottles of water and stuff like that. I want you to prepare for this day that Christ talks about, that Paul is addressing, because when the day happens, it's too late to prepare. And, or if we die first before that day comes, it's too late to prepare by building on the, on the, on the foundation with the superstructure. So we are God's field, we are God's building, we are God's temple. Do you know Christ today? That's how you become that, is through faith and repentance in him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we give you thanks that you are at work, that we matter to you, and we corporately as a church uh, and part of the body of Christ universal matter to you, and we are special and loved by you. Thank you that you are at work in us, and you've sent people into our lives who watered and who sowed and, and who tended to us, and you continue to do that. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.